0: The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello everyone, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. We're looking for people to advertise on the podcast. So if you have a product or service that you think would be a good fit for our audience, then please reach out to us. Just a reminder, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star rating so that people find us when they Google podcasts about addiction. Also, be sure and check out our YouTube channel and give us a thumbs up there, subscribe, and if you want to be notified of future videos, then ring the bell, and that will do that. Today's episode is episode number 276, and today we have an interview with a lady named Nicole Woodruff. Nicole is a Tampa-based occupational therapist and yoga teacher. She had a sister who was addicted, and that's what we're going to talk to her about today. She wrote a book about it called Saving My Sister, and I want to hear more about her story, what it was like, and what she's doing now. So without further ado, let's talk to Nicole Woodruff. Nicole Woodruff, thank you for being willing to be on the podcast today and sharing your story with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So I know that your story as regards addiction involves your sister. So take us back, though, to where you guys grew up and, you know, what your childhood was like and kind of how it progressed from there, how she got into drugs.
1: Sure. So we grew up in a really small town, um, what I call like the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania, a small town called Minersville. Uh, where everybody knows everyone and we're five years apart so we always kind of had that big pretty big age gap uh in between and so we weren't like super close growing up just because of our age difference we were never really at the same school at the same time um and she's older she was older she was older yeah she's five years older than me okay yes um but as far as like how we I mean, we were raised in the same household. Our parents got divorced when my sister was about a senior in high school, so I was like somewhere around seventh grade. Um, so I remember that being a little bit of a challenge, you know, at the time, but uh, our parents always got along after they divorced, so it was never like a a big rift in our family, even so. Um, but just. I always looked up to her when I was uh, younger. I always thought that she was like the cool girl. She always had a lot of friends and she was popular. And um, I always like, you know, just thought, oh, if I could be, I always wanted to be older. Like I grew up wanting to be older because I think I had a sister that was so much older and just wanted to kind of fit in with her. But then as far as like where it took a turn for her, I'd say somewhere around high school, Um is when she kind of got into certain, certain drugs, like um, like mushrooms. And she always smoked cigarettes and uh, things like that. But then her drug of choice was opioids and eventually heroin. And that started when she graduated from high school and was in early college. So she was taking pills and she had gotten into a few car accidents and during that time, it was prescribed different things. And this was the height of the opioid. I mean, not let's say the height of the opioid epidemic, but this was the start, I'd say, of the opioid epidemic with the big push from pharma, pharmaceutical companies to prescribe painkillers for any sort of pain, right? So anybody that had car accident type pain or, you know, low back pain, they were prescribing opioids for moderate pain at the time. So it Heck, wasn't they hard. did it for
0: dental work, you know? Right.
1: I mean, right. Yes. And so I'm so glad I'm educated on this now to look back at that time period and be like, well, it all makes sense, you know, but she was a young girl, you know, going through a lot of, you know, life changes and things at the same time. And then she's has easy access to these drugs that make you feel good. It's easy to get addicted. Yeah. And that pattern happened for sure. That was in her early twenties, but it kind of seemed like more of like a I take these, I party, maybe not a full blown addiction that started after she had, she gave birth to her son when she was 23.
0: Okay. I'm sorry to cut you off, but just of curiosity, my- did you talk
1: to her about it? Did you observe it? Did you ask her about it? Well, I just kind of remember because I was like, I don't even know how old I was. Like I was early college, still yeah so I might have been like 18 she might have or 17 18 she might have been 22 23 and I remember she had like a prescription for tramadol but she was like oh I don't even take these anymore like she had moved on to Vicodin or she you know or the next one up and that's what she was taking at that time but it wasn't it wasn't like consuming her life at least I didn't know that it was at that point until after the birth of her son is when she like admitted she had a problem
0: and what yeah. year was that when her son was born? Two thousand
1: eight. Okay,
0: and she was how yeah. old?
1: She was twenty three at the time. Okay, yeah, going on twenty four, and she a couple months, I guess, into the postpartum experience, uh, admitted that she was like taking uh, twenty Vicodin a day, and like I said, I was I was eighteen or nineteen at the time and didn't really quite understand what all that meant. I just, Oh, it sounds like an awful lot of pills, but she was admitting and open about having a problem and she got into outpatient counseling. So we thought, well, that's for her to self admit and, you know, take, take ownership of that, admit it to her doctor and my parents and my family, then maybe, you know, that's a good sign, but you know, it wasn't that (laughs) cut and dry. Well, yeah.
0: I mean, Yeah. Okay. So she, she was in an outpatient program. Was it, and it was specifically for drug addiction, correct? Yes. Yes. I believe it. And how long was she in that program?
1: You know, I can't recall how long she was in, you know, that, that certain program at the time, you know, maybe a few months. I know she seemed like for a while, she, she was doing okay after that. Like she kind of got it together and because she had brought this up to her doctor, like, Hey, I think I have a problem with these pills. She wasn't being prescribed them by the doctor anymore. So that was kind of a way to, you know, we made sure she wasn't on them.
0: Right.
1: So she, I think she had a few years, maybe a year. I don't know that she was doing okay. And while my nephew was, Growing up, she was a stay-at-home mom and she was taking care of him. But then eventually she found her way back to, to taking these pills again. Right. Was she married? She was not. Okay. No. And in fact, she got pregnant really early on in that relationship. They had only known each other a few months um, when she got pregnant. I got it. Yeah.
0: Okay. So how old was her son when, as far as you know, she started using again?
1: He was probably one or two, a toddler. Yeah. And I think it just kind of cycled back and forth for a while with those pills. And until eventually at some point she had gotten on Suboxone and was taking that for a long time. Yeah. And this was this was all before she ever tried heroin.
0: I got it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, Suboxone is supposed to be like a short-term um fix but sometimes people get addicted to suboxone so Mm -hmm. so how how did you guys know that she was using again did she bring her
1: son over how did you guys know Uh, you know i think it was just kind of Some a lot of times we wouldn't know. You know, because I used because I was in college, so I didn't live at home at the time, but my sister did live at home with my dad. And when I would go home and I would see her and just watch her and interact, I'd be like, something ain't right with her. You know, I don't know if I I don't know what's going on. But she always had this built-in excuse that she had chronic pain. Hmm. And I'm not dismissing her pain because I do know that you know, I, I believe a lot of that was real. Yeah, But she leaned so heavily on these drugs and never did anything else that her body like didn't know how to function without them, you know? Right. So I think eventually how she justified it to my parents is like, well, I'm taking the Suboxone because it helps me manage my pain. And then I'm not going to take the the narcotics. This is kind of the replacement for both. So they just it was kind of just status quo for many years that that's what she was on.
0: I got it. Do you know when she um, segued over to heroin?
1: yeah so that's and that's where uh my story starts when i when i write my book is 2014 um, was the first time that she had tried heroin and um had her first overdose
0: okay so she overdosed but they brought her back yes okay what what was that situation i mean did they use narcan in the like the emts brought her back was that what occurred Dan Carity, if I'm being honest, is the new powerful podcast to listen to. Dan is a globetrotting television personality, a choreographer to stars like Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake, a loving husband and father, and a man struggling with addiction and anxiety. On his podcast, he shares ugly truths from his life in front of and away from the camera and those of his courageous guests as well from the world of entertainment, sports, media, and medicine, such as NFL player Ryan Leaf, pioneer DJ Don Diablo, actor and comedian Jamie Kennedy, and many more. So check out his new podcast, Dan Carradine, if I'm being honest, on Spotify, Apple, and Google, or go to his website, www.dancarity.com. That's www.dankarity.com.
1: Yes, I believe so. Uh, the first overdose was in January uh, 2014. Um, I had gotten a call for at work from my mom that my sister had overdosed and she, we needed to she was down at the hospital about an hour away from where we lived and we needed to go get her. So she was with somebody who had given her heroin and then I think um, called 911 and kind of freaked out. So then they left her, um, but they did call the, you know, emergency and she was taken to the hospital and she was stable and okay. But yeah, she, she had overdose. I see. And did she then go back to treatment or... Yeah. So this was, so at this point, my sister had never been in, into an inpatient facility before. Okay. So this was the first time that we were like, okay, this was, this is pretty bad because even though for years on and off, she had taken pills, she had always told me that she would never do heroin. She said, you know, I remember like specifically her telling me like, if I would ever do heroin, like you would know, Nicole, I'm in a bad place. Like that is not, I'm not going to mess with that. But like a lot of opioid users, you know, no, it's, it's once those pills eventually got too hard to get, or, you know, who knows what happened with the suboxone? I, I really not even sure. Um, that was, that was an option for her. And eventually she crossed that line and she did it.
0: Right. I don't know about the pricing for Suboxone. I know that oftentimes people go to heroin because it's much less expensive than trying to get Oxycontin or Vicodin or a prescription medication if they can't get the prescription anymore. So yeah. Okay. So what happened then? Did she go into inpatient treatment? Yes. So- Not inpatient. You know what I mean. It yeah. is impatient. Yeah, it was impatient. Okay. It yeah, was yeah, inpatient. Sorry, I yeah. thought I was using the wrong word. Got it. No, sorry. yeah,
1: no, okay. she did. She went into inpatient treatment. Um, I left work that day. I picked her up from the hospital. I took her home um, and I stayed with her that night. And then the next day I like took off work and devoted my life to getting her into treatment because I was like, okay, this is bad. You're, this is, you said you'd never do this. You've obviously hit a point in this addiction that we need to get you help that's really going to make a difference so let's we got to get you in an inpatient program and then it was the whole the whole cycle of trying to find somewhere to take her um because my sister was um on pennsylvania medicaid insurance and my parents don't have like excess amount of dollars to just put towards treatment and then have no guarantee it's even going to work. That's the big, that's the big thing with addiction treatment, right? You don't even know if it's going to work. Right. Um, So we found out the process of having to get her into a facility was through uh, an evaluation with the County. And then they would put her in a state funded um, inpatient drug rehab for 28 days that took her insurance. So we did that the very next day, we got her the evaluation. And then the next day she went into treatment. So two days after that overdose, she was in her first inpatient facility. Okay.
0: And she was there 28 days. She was. You know, the bummer with the whole 28 days thing is that, um, and we've talked to so many addicts, it's usually not long enough. Yeah. And that was
1: my biggest that was the biggest like eye-opening thing for me. And a big story I shared in my book is because I had, I thought, Oh my gosh, she's in, she's in treatment. This is going to go so well, you know, like she's going to come out of here and she's going to be sober. I'm going to talk to her for the first time in years. She's going to be sober. And I was just so excited for that reunion and the progress I was going to see. And then I walked into her apartment that night and she had like already relapsed. She yep. was already on heroin. Like it was so apparent to me. And I was just so disappointed. it was just a big reality check that like, just because somebody goes to rehab does not mean that they're going to come out of there and like, be better or be sober. No, so you're right. It was really eye opening.
0: Yep. So, okay. So she relapsed kind of immediately. And then how did she progress from there?
1: It got, it got worse before it got better, that's for sure. So she relapsed immediately. And then so she came home from rehab on a Tuesday. And then Friday night of that same week, she overdosed again. And uh, ended up back in the hospital. We got a call Saturday morning that she was in the hospital. And um, she was being admitted to their mental health ward of the hospital. And, we and my mom needed to go out there and like bring her some things. So that was like the next big, you know, thing that happened. And um, it wasn't too much longer. You know, she was in the the hospital for a few weeks, came out, she did, she seemed okay for a few weeks, but then eventually she, yeah.
0: Did they dry her out in the hospital or did they just give her substitute medication? Do you know?
1: You know, I'm not really sure. Just curious. Yeah. I, I don't remember because it was, yeah, like it was 2014 and I know she was in the mental health, uh, side of the hospital not necessarily in um like a detox program so right i'm pretty sure she was just maybe cold turkey i'm not sure
0: okay yeah. so she came out after you said a couple weeks or a few weeks
1: yeah i think she might have been in there for about 2 weeks or so and then um she seemed okay for about a month there was like a, a period of time where okay We considered kind of letting her maybe have, because all this time, then we had her son because he was five years old when she had her first, um, we're almost, yeah, yeah. He was five years old when she had her first overdose uh, in January, 2014. So then we took him and he was living with us at my mom's house. And the plan was, you know, maybe to if she's doing okay, he can go back and live with her. He wanted to. But I'm glad we didn't because we waited a little longer. And then she uh, started abusing her um, prescription for Klonopin. And that got really out of hand uh, really quickly. Yeah.
0: Okay. And so he was five years old. Um, Does he still live with your parents?
1: No, he actually is with his dad now.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Yeah. Okay. Much older now, but at the time... He was five going on six and, um, she got out of the hospital and she was doing okay. Like I said, so we started to let her, um, like watch him. Like there was some days she would have him. And one of the days she had him, she got into a car accident and totaled her vehicle. And yeah. Yeah. So that was like another time it's like, okay, you're not doing as well as we thought you were. And we had to keep him for a while longer.
0: Okay. And so then did she go back into treatment again?
1: Not for a long time. Okay. No. She eventually, so when she started abusing that Klonopin, things got really out of hand really quickly. She must have been taking, I mean, at the time she told us it was well, After the fact, she told us it was just the Klonopin, but there had to be maybe some other drugs involved because her behavior was like erratic. She would show up to our house and like, just scream at the top of her lungs and demand things like money for cigarettes or money. She was like physically fighting us. There was a a point a story I tell that where my sister and I were rolling around on my mom's kitchen floor fighting because like she lunged at me and was just so angry. It was like this rage within her. And because my mom's house was the closest to my sister's apartment, and my sister no longer had a vehicle because she got into a car accident. She used to walk down and just like harass us on a, on a daily basis. And we really didn't know what to do. I eventually had to, um, seek help through the the county and like crisis services and find a way to get her hospitalized in Pennsylvania. We call that a 302 to get mm-hmm. them a uh, person hospitalized against their will or so to say, um, She eventually agreed and was hospitalized and medications were straightened out. They got her off of the colonopin and she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. They got some of those medications figured out. And for a a good chunk of time after that hospital stay, so she didn't have to go back into drug and alcohol treatment, but a good time after this hospital stay for about a year or so, she was doing well, that we knew that she was doing well. And eventually my nephew went back to stay with her. I'm sorry, what year was that? So that was twenty fourteen into twenty fifteen. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So how many years did she do all right? So the first like red flag that things weren't going well that we knew about was January 2016. So she got into another car accident. My my parents in the meantime of the year 2015 thought, okay, she's doing better my mom wanted to get a new car. So she gave her her car. And that my sister drove that around for a while, until she totaled that vehicle in uh, January 2016. I see. Luckily, nobody was in the car with her that time. But and she wasn't hurt. She refused medical attention. So we couldn't see if anything was in her system. There was no, she wouldn't go to the hospital. And she just told us she lost control of the vehicle. But looking back on it, like, my parents, you know, should have pushed further or whatever, but we kind of like let it go. And then You want to a-
0: believe she's trying. I get right, that. You know, right. you want to see
1: the good in people. I get Absolutely. it, you know? Yeah. And then just a few months later after that accident, she overdosed on heroin that was laced with fentanyl. And this was in April of 2016. And this time my nephew found her. Gosh. And yeah, so he was eight years old at the time this happened. And it was a really like, yeah, traumatic uh, event. But um, the, my, he texted my mom that she, he found her and she got up there as quickly as she could. By the time she got there, like my sister looked blue. She wasn't sure what was going to happen. They took him out of the house, called the ambulance. And by the time they got there, like her, res- her respirations were down to like four per minute. So wow. her system was super like shutting down. And they put her on the ambulance. They thought where they were gonna have to uh, medevac her to a hospital, but I guess they, I don't know why they waited, but once they got her up to like the helicopter pad to like put her on, they administered Narcan there. And then that's when she kind of came back to life and they never medevaced her. They never took her to the hospital because she refused. So they just took her to the police station and charged her for child endangerment and reckless endangerment. So that he was, was what
0: seven at the time,
1: eight, eight.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh man.
1: Yeah. So this poor, yeah. And then that's when she lost full custody of her son. Yeah. So I know your podcast is called, you know, the point of no return. This is where I thought would be like her first point of no return. Right. Yeah. I thought yeah. this would be the big wake up call. But unfortunately, it didn't work that way for her. Um, It only caused more guilt, more shame. And then she buried herself into her addiction further because she couldn't handle what she did. Yep. Yeah.
0: You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name. Or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com or call us at 727 314 7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five star review. Sometimes the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. The service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. You know, we talk about it on the podcast. I think a lot of times addicts don't consider, well, they typically don't consider anybody but themselves and how things affect them. But the effect on an eight-year-old boy, it just, it breaks my heart. It's not something that you know, he can just like lay aside and say, Oh, okay, well that's done. And that's not going to affect me anymore. And it's just, anyway, it's very, very unfortunate. And not to mention all of the effect that we're listening to right now is the effect on you as her sister and your mom and dad. It's a nightmare for you guys. I mean, yeah, I'm preaching to the choir. Sorry about that. Uh, So I know that she didn't pass away in 2016. So what, happened between that and the time and when she actually did pass away
1: so this was this was an interesting time and then uh, for a while many months after that overdose in April um she didn't do well like she lost custody of my nephew he lived with my mom eventually uh, he went to go live with his dad who he's had full custody of him basically, ever since then, after that summer, he did. And Amanda, she just kind of, I don't, went back and forth uh, a couple months, I think around the fall of 2016, so maybe about six months later, she decided that she was going to try rehab again. So this would be her second inpatient stay. And um, it again, I don't know the exact timeline here, because I did, I In this, within these years of time I'm talking about, I actually moved out of state. I no longer lived in Pennsylvania because I needed to like distance myself from the situation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But she relapsed pretty quickly after she got home. And a big realization for us here was she can't just go to rehab for 28 days and then expect that a month later she's going to. Go back home and live exactly where she was before, around all the same people, and then succeed. Nope. This was a big eye-opening for us. Like, okay, yep. two times in a row now she's gone home, she's relapsed almost immediately. Like, if she's ever going to do this type of thing again, she's going to have to go somewhere else, change so of
0: environment, change the scenery. Right. You can't. You you don't right. know for sure that that will work, but it's something you kind
1: of have to do. Okay. Yeah. So uh, that was 2016. And then 2017 was a pretty, really rough year. Um, she started using meth, uh, IV, meth and heroin at the same time. So she would do like, you know, meth when she wanted to be awake and heroin when she wanted to come down. And then like this combination in her brain just was like totally, um, uh, crazy. Like she would hallucinate, she would see things that weren't there, um, meanwhile how how could she afford all this i honestly looking back i have no idea she did have some part-time jobs in the the meantime like she was working at a tobacco shop um and eventually a few i don't know like it was she worked at walmart somewhere during this time too so she did have some jobs in between um and i know addicts somehow always figure out a way to to get to Trade or work things out, they pawn stuff, they sell stuff. They, you know, she figured out a way always to yeah. seem to make it work. But I, um, sorry, I forget where I was. Where
0: 2017 mess, yeah, to so stay meth, awake, heroin, yes, the and heroin.
1: Good yes. And my parents, I remember around the 4th of July 2017, they were sending me videos of her, uh, she showed up to their house and I, she looked. I I can't even describe what I was like watching. It was just something like I had never seen in, in my life. She wasn't making any sense and she's just swaying back and forth. And they're asking her in the video, Amanda, what are you on? What did you take? You know, like, are you okay? She's like, I'm not on anything. You know, she just kept denying it and just getting so angry with them. And, something in me was just like, this can't continue because meanwhile, like I mentioned in the story before in 2016, she was charged with endangering the welfare of a child and reckless endangerment for using heroin around my nephew when she was supposed to be watching him. Right. So she was put on what they call in Pennsylvania, the ARD program, which is kind of like a get out of jail free card, right? It's like, if it's your first offense, uh, you are put into this program where, if you, you know, behave, you do all the checkpoints, everything you're supposed to do, then you can be. Eventually, your charges can be expunged. Years later, they won't be on your record. And this program had a way more lenient uh, probation system, so she didn't have to pass like drug tests regularly. She just kind of had to log into an online system, and you know, I don't know. Okay, that makes was- no
0: sense whatsoever. No, it
1: really that makes didn't. no
0: sense that she wouldn't have to do yeah. drug tests.
1: Yes. She may have ha- I think at the beginning, when she first entered the program, she had to like participate in outpatient counseling okay. and do some community service. But once she was finished with that, there was no follow-up. There was no follow-through, there was no regular check-ins. So she had no accountability, and for her, the only thing that really scared her like enough to stop using during this time period after that 2016 overdose was like the fear of going to jail because I don't think she felt like she could really handle what that would in, would entail, you know? Yeah. So and he, once she realized that this system she had, did not have to worry about drug tests, she went back to using again. And so this cycle just kind of repeated. And I thought, well, what, did, what are we doing here? This She's supposed to be on probation, but look at her at my parents' house. So I reached out to a friend that I knew and I thought, can you help me? Can you get in touch with somebody in, in probation? Because I knew he had connections with our county and he did that. And then she got a call like a few days later and was was told like, hey, we, it was reported that you might be, you know, not following the terms of your probation agreement. And We're going to have to do more regular check-ins with you. And then she started getting drug tested regularly, but she failed drug test after drug test after drug test for months and months and months, but she never went to jail. I don't know what terms here or whatever there was, but she just kept having to, you know, take these eventually. I don't know if she just got tired of it. If her probation officer somehow cut through to her, but she decided again this was the fall of 2017 that she was ready to try rehab again so this would be her third inpatient stay and this time we decided okay you are not going back home after rehab and she had an i mentioned she had an apartment but it was like a public housing low-income apartment that my dad paid the rent for because no matter what he never wanted her to be on the street so he always made sure she had a roof over her head even if that's where she lived you know and so we just, we cut the lease off. We got rid of her stuff, put a lot of it in storage and just said, you can't go back here. So your only options are recovery house. That, that's it, you know? So when she discharged from that 28-day program, she was in a much better place because I think she was finally ready to go. She had lost like 50 pounds. She was so thin. She wasn't eating. All she was doing was using meth, heroin, and just never did anything for herself. So went to this recovery house and had a good stretch of time where she was doing well. The first time at this, re- uh, for her first time ever at a recovery house. Wish I could say, you know, that lasted and, you know, but she did eventually relapse again and went to a fourth rehab and then back to another recovery house in, um, 2018. Okay.
0: <laughs> and then when when did she
1: pass away yeah so uh so she passed away in june of 2019 so during that period of time she was living at a recovery house so she had another relapse in between those times i had been talking to you about uh december 2018 um But I got her back into recovery house January 2019. She was very willing and receptive this time. She didn't want to go to rehab, but she got clean on her own. She got back on the Vivitrol shot because during this time, after I I should mention when she was in recovery at these recovery houses, they put her on Vivitrol and that made a big difference for her for a while. When that shot was active and in her system, she did well and she was able to. She was going to meetings and participating in a program for a what good is, stretch of What time.
0: is Vivitrol, Nicole?
1: So Vivitrol is a long-acting, I believe, naloxone. It's kind of like a Suboxone, um, but it's an in, a monthly injection. And so it blocks the opioid receptors, so okay. they're not, yes. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, not as abuse-prone, right? And it's apparently very effective for a lot of um, people who struggle with opioid addiction. So she was on that for a long time. And she was, uh, she got back on that in 2019 when I said she had relapsed and went back into her recovery house and was living there for a while until basically May, early June of that year, 2019 and she relapsed started using they found drugs at the recovery house and she got kicked out and then that was the kind of her last few weeks before she eventually overdosed and and passed away
0: well i'm sorry i'm sorry that it had to go that far you know it's why we do the podcast because we we hope you know we can give enough information out there and you know, so that people don't get to that point. Um, when did you write your book, Nicole? And kind of what prompted you to write your book?
1: So I wrote my book. Um, it's called Saving My Sister, How I Created Meaning from Addiction and Loss. Uh, I started writing it in January of 2020. So my sister had passed away that June of 2019. So about six months later. And the reason why I started writing it was because when my sister had a long stretch of sobriety, so this was, this would be 2018. That was like her longest stretch she had. It was about, um, nine months, eight to nine months. We talked about writing a book together. There was so many good months in that time frame where she was doing really well. She would call me all the time. We talked, we had a really good relationship and I, you know, I kind of, I always wanted to write a book and I said, you know, what would be a cool book to like, tell your story, but say the events from my perspective, like what this looked like and the worry that we had. And just, you know, just how this, this picture looked from my perspective versus what was actually going on in your head during those moments. Gosh, if she can even remember half the time, but, you know, uh, I just thought that'd be a cool book to see like what Amanda was thinking versus what I was thinking in like the same events. And so we kind of bounce ideas off each other. And she's like, yeah, like if she's like, heck, if you'll write it, because that writing a book would never be something my sister could do but I'll I'll tell you my story let's do it so we talked about it and it was always going to be like a someday thing you know we'll we'll get there and then you know a year later that 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 became that I couldn't do that anymore that wasn't an option so after she passed away I really kind of dove deep into like just self-exploration for myself, um, spirituality, how do I connect to her? Like, what do I do to take care of myself grieving? And I thought, you know, we talked about this book, maybe that could be a way I can help other people and help myself process this trauma that, you know, I got my, myself, my family had gone through for so many years. So I just started writing. I I ended up finding a self-publishing team company that, that helped me, you know, put it all together And finally, uh, May 24th, 2022, it was released and it's now available. So um, yeah, it's been a work in progress, but I'm really happy that I I finally got it out there.
0: I think it's great. I think that more and more people need to, you know, read a story like yours. And um, yeah, if you had one piece of advice that you would give people in a similar situation to yours... What, what would it be?
1: I would say there's, there's a couple of things, but one of the biggest things that I learned over the years of dealing with my sister is to always approach them from a place of love. If they're an inactive addiction and they're using, and say you're concerned about a relapse and you want to approach them like, Hey, I think you relapsed. If you do that from a place of anger or a place of, accusation yes yes they're not going to be honest with you or they're not going to be happy with you right they're probably not going to be compliant or you know willing to do what you're asking them to do and that's what I learned over the years is that I could not approach my sister from that place I had to learn how to kind of I always say like meet her where she was at and I say that phrase because she was like she was on drugs so she's cool and she's she's not like stressed right i had to be loving and i had to learn how to approach her in a way that she knew i wasn't upset with her i wasn't angry and that she could be open and talk with me so that's always the approach that i i recommend and i really paint this picture really clear in the book just like how at the beginning i went from like disgust and anger like feeling betrayed to the end just saying like okay relapse is part of recovery These are these moments are going to happen. I could either extend my hand out and and say, "Hey, I'm here for you, and I will help you, and I'm not mad at you." And hopefully, she'll take it. And if she doesn't, then you know, like I I did what I could. So it was learning to detach with love in a different kind of way and not be so. you have to do this. You've got to go back to what are you doing? And like accusatory where I said, I feel like some people never kind of get that. And they, they continue to fight with the person with addiction versus love them. Yep. And granted at the end of the day, it's not, my approach didn't save my sister, even though that's the name of my book, trying to save, you know, it's trying to save my sister, Yeah. but ultimately I, I did what I could to help her. And I know she, I know she knew that.
0: Yep. You know. well, and I also think, you know, you learned at some point, especially when you moved out of the house, that you had to take care of yourself and ultimately, if you cannot get your loved one into treatment and you cannot get them to help themselves, if you have spent all those years being angry with them about it, that's going to add to some regret that you have do you know and i think if if at least you can look yourself in the mirror and say i tried i extended my hand with love and for whatever reason she couldn't take it and she couldn't do it but i can feel good about myself do you know what i mean because i think you know we've talked about this on the podcast that when you have a loved one who's addicted you you have to take care of yourself because dealing with someone like that can just be all encompassing And you can't do their treatment. You can't go through it for them. And you can't, you know, you can't get them clean. You can't be clean and sober for them. And so if you don't take care of yourself, that can, and not to mention the fact that I'm fairly certain that the addict feels guilty about that. Do you know what I mean? Because they know the effect they're creating and then they're going to feel guilty about that. And that just adds to the whole cycle of guilt and addiction anyway. And your, your book... Nicole is available on Amazon and people can find it and it's called Saving My Sister. Yes. Yep. And and thank you for writing the book. Thank you for sharing the book. I know I'm sure it wasn't always the easiest thing to do. You know, I, you know, you could have gone the other way and just said, I'm never going to talk about it again and I'm just going to live my life and not do that. But you yeah. you did, and I think that's and huge. that is a,
1: yeah, and that is a big reason why I put this story out there. And I've had people reach out to me, you know, over the last week, so many people. It's it's been amazing the feedback. But that's essentially what a lot of those families do. Yep. They they sweep it under the rug. They don't talk about it, and you know, essentially, they don't necessarily heal from it. They just kind of learn to just push it away and act like it didn't happen and. I just didn't want to do that with her story. I don't think she would have wanted me to do that. You know, she'd mentioned wanting to write this. She wanted to help people. And one thing my sister always said to me is that she didn't want to live the life she was living. Like she didn't want to be an addict. She could not figure out how to, you know, to get away from it. And so I know that if right now she's beaming in pride to know that her story, as messy as it was, is helping other people understand addiction more. Yep. that is that is purpose right there. And that's how we created meaning from her story. and i'm I'm really proud of that.
0: I think I think you should be proud. I think that's great. Nicole, thank you for talking to us today. Thank you for sharing oh, the story. i I know that, You know, today's interviewer is going to help someone who's watching or listening, and your book is going to help someone who's watching or listening. Once again, it's Saving My Sister. It's by Nicole Davis Woodruff, and it's available on Amazon. And I will put up a picture of the cover and the video. And, um, yeah,
1: thank you. Appreciate it, yes. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for listening today. We have talked many times about the effect that addiction has on family members. Sometimes it's overlooked. Sometimes, you know, all of the attention is on the addict and, you know, how this affects the family is, can be pretty devastating. Um, Yeah. So we really appreciate Nicole being willing to share her story. Once again, her book is Saving My Sister and her full name is Nicole Davis Woodruff. Thank you for listening. We will be back again with another interview.
1: You have been listening
0: to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.